0: Let's pray together. Oh Jesus, you are our focus now. And your work for us is what we must speak and think on. I pray that we would go from here with your word full and ready to endure whatever trial you have for us, whatever calling you have given to us, We may do these things with joy. We may do these things proclaiming your excellencies to a watching world. And I pray that you would help your servant now to rightly divide your word in order to accomplish this. In your name we pray this. Amen. Turn with me to the first Letter of Peter, First Peter. Now, take courage. We are only going to be dealing with three verses for you sleep-deprived folks. But we're going to read the larger section that these three verses fall in. So we are going to read First Peter 1, beginning in verse 3. And reading all the way down to verse 12. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, concerning this salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of christ and the subsequent glories it was revealed to them that they were not serving uh, not themselves but you In the things that have been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Notice in our passage two things that shouldn't go together. They go together like orange juice and toothpaste, like flip flops and wet cement, like sunbathing and fire ants, like sunshine and schoolwork. These two things don't go together. Verse 3 rejoicing, praise, joy. Verse 6 rejoice. Verse 6, grievous trials. Fiery trials, Peter would tell us in chapter 4, verse 12. Fiery trials and rejoicing. These two things do not seem to fit together. Why are they talked about in the same paragraph? No, Peter doesn't have a martyr's complex No, Peter isn't a trial denier. No, Peter isn't whitewashing over these trials, proposing that maybe spiritually you have a get out of trial free card as a Christian. No, trials are real in the Christian life, they will come. 2 Timothy 3.12 will say that if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will face trials. And trials, Peter would tell you, will be fiery. They will hurt, according to chapter 4, verse 12. Trials are real, they are coming, and they will hurt. But Peter can juxtapose, put alongside, rejoicing in fiery trials because he sees life from a spiritual perspective. Similar to Paul in Second Corinthians 4.17, he experiences real trials that hurt and still describes these trials as light, as momentary. Why? Because he sees life with a spiritual perspective. He sees life in context of eternity. These are light. These are momentary things. Or, like Paul also does in Romans 8.18, these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. These these are the way believers that see life from a spiritual perspective see trials. And we really need the way Peter starts his life letter here we need this in our life we need this in our minds we need this in our hearts if we are going to live in this world and be of any earthly good let me let me say it another way you, you don't necessarily need the absence of trials in your life to be of spiritual good you need the presence of trials and testing This doesn't mean trials and testing are automatically good for everybody that they automatically touch. No, they are only good for some people. They only do spiritual good for some. And those are the people with a spiritual perspective. Uh, The preacher Steve Lawson once said, and it has stuck in my mind, that some people will ridicule Christians. They say, you Christians... You are so heavenly-minded, you're of no earthly good. Your mind is always up there in the sky, and the clouds, and and you do nothing for this world. But then he goes on to say, we we must hold that. The the only way we will be of ultimate earthly good is if we are first heavenly-minded. The only people that are of earthly good in this world are those people who have a spiritual perspective, are those people who see heaven. So Peter writes, Peter writes by the way from the very midst of fiery trials that he is experiencing in Rome to those who will soon be facing trials in Asia Minor. He writes to to woo them and to wow them. He writes to woo them by the grace that is theirs and and will be theirs in fiery trials. And he also writes to woo them. And he writes to woo you, maybe even in the midst of a few trials, to call you to the calling to which you've been called in those trials. He writes to woo. He writes to wow. Wow. Once again, this doesn't mean trials will automatically do you any good. But, and here, here's my organizing idea, trials will only be of spiritual value to you if you first have these three spiritual perspectives in them. So let's look at these three spiritual perspectives we must have if trials will do us any good. Spiritual perspective number one, God has set... His life within you. God has set his life into your heart. Now, I am aware that there are unbelievers in this congregation right now. Let me be clear. This is a message about believers. It's a message about what believers have, the the glories that believers have. Will receive. It is about the grace that believers presently even have right now. It is about believers in their privileges. But it can be also for you this morning. Remember, therefore, while we are talking about these glories and privileges that believers can even presently hold to And anticipate in the future the message for you is that these are your deficiencies in the present. And this is your poverty in the future. So let me be very clear to the unbelievers in this room. This may not be about you, but this message is also for you. God has set, number one, his life within you. Verse 3, you see that. He has caused us to be born again it is not that God's mercy and grace have been given to you because you grew up in a Christian home it's not because you heard the gospel message and it is not even that you believed certain words that you heard notice the emphasis is on him God the father of the Lord Jesus Christ God's living hope is given to you first and foremost because he decided in his sovereignty to get his hands dirty in your business, so to speak, in your life. Not only did God send his holy and precious son to live a fully perfect life, die a death that sinners deserved, and for sinners, and was raised for a sinner's hope, as we've just been singing, God also sent His holy and His precious Spirit, His Holy Spirit, into your sinful and filthy heart to awaken you spiritually, to make you alive, to implant life, His life, and to cause you to be, that word, born again and enable you to receive and believe the good news of Jesus. He has caused us to be born again. This is speaking about the miracle that is the new birth. And Peter will go on to explain this miracle in chapter 1 all the way down in verse 22. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Notice the new birth there is referred to a little bit differently than it is in our passage. Notice it is explained a little bit. The new birth is referred to as an inner cleansing. It's a cleansing of your desires, maybe, of your thoughts. It's an inner cleansing and also a conforming of the will to obedience to God. And look at the result, brotherly love. That is the new birth, as he shows in verse 23. All of this God did for you, not you. He has set his life the presence of the Holy Spirit into your heart, into your mind, into your will, and that is why you are changed. As Ezekiel 6:27 through 28 would say, he is the one who took out a heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. That is a heart that is willing to re- believe, repent, obey. And as Jesus would say in John 3, unless you are born again by the Spirit, you can't even see the kingdom of heaven. You cannot see Jesus as you need to. Or as John would say in John 1, 12 through 13, because you have been born again, you can receive him. And you can believe in him and you can have faith. That is the new birth. He has implanted his imperishable seed in you his word which produces life that results in a love for god and a love for people it is his work that gives life and he gives you his life through the presence of the holy spirit and now i ask you my friend my unbelieving friend for whom this message is not about but remember it is still for do you hunger for that kind of life do you hunger for that kind of activity in the soul that cleansing of the heart do you have a will that is worn out by unbelief and disobedience this first spiritual perspective is he has set his life within your heart. Second spiritual perspective, he has set his wealth before you. He has set his wealth before you, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading kept in heaven for you. Well, what is an inheritance? Well, in the biblical world, uh, the inheritance was critical to the future security and stability of the family. The family without an inheritance was the family that would quickly be in poverty. It was passed from father to child at the death of the father. Usually the oldest son got a double portion of the inheritance because he was seen as the provider and the protector of the family. It It was kind of future security for the family. And you see references to inheritances all over the Bible, particularly with land, but also in other contexts like Proverbs thirteen twenty it is the righteous and good father who leaves an inheritance for his children. He leaves security for his children. It is the wicked father who leaves nothing who gobbles up all of his assets on himself, he is a wicked father because he leaves no security for his children. All of this to say, and I think you can get this, right? An inheritance is a good thing. You want an inheritance. An inheritance means future security, stability. It is something you want. And we see here it is called a living hope, verse 3. And it is also, verse 4, currently under the guard of God in heaven. This inheritance, however, is perhaps best described because of our, our fallen minds, if you were. It is best described, really, by what it isn't. We, 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 don't really, we can't really get our minds around what it is, but maybe Peter can help us by showing us what it isn't. To, to show this, in verse 4, Peter uses three alliterated adjectives. They all begin with this Greek letter alpha, which serves to kind of negate the words that they're connected to. It is very much like how an A in, in English with certain words kind of does the same thing. For example, you attach an A to the beginning of moral, and you get the very opposite of moral, amoral. Uh, So these words show basically what the inheritance isn't. And by the way, we we understand this alliteration works, right? It adds beauty and it helps something stick in our minds, right? Where? Where will you go if you suddenly need something bed, bath, or beyond related? You will go to bed, bath, or beyond. Alliteration helps it stick and it also adds to the beauty, Let's see how Peter describes this inheritance negatively. First up, it is death-proof. It is death-proof. It is imperishable. It is as the Greek word would say. It cannot be touched by death, by decay, or by rot. It is not like those perishable potatoes in your pantry that you need to remember are there, otherwise they will start to stink. And they will spread their stinky goodness to all the food around them. These are imperishable. They are untouchable by death, decay, or rot. This inheritance is death-proof. It is also sin-proof. It is undefiled. Amiantas, the Greek word is, sin, evil, corruption cannot touch this. It is not like that stock market or that 401k or that retirement package that might be there that you hope will survive this sin-soaked world. It is sin-proof. Think of it like this. You couldn't handle heaven right now as you currently are. You couldn't handle life without a glorified body. You need to be glorified. Otherwise, you couldn't handle the perfection and the holiness of God in heaven this moment. That's why God resurrects us with new bodies. It is This, this inheritance is death-proof. This inheritance is sin-proof. And we see another word, amarantas. It is time-proof. It is unfading. It is an inheritance that is Permanently lovely, permanently beautiful, permanently in bloom. It is not like that paint that peels. It is not like those tires that wear, that t-shirt that fades, that hair that stops, or those flowers that fail and fall. Nothing Nothing in this inheritance carries anything that is ruinous, decaying. Heaven cannot carry any of those things, so this inheritance is not. Nothing of this inheritance or heaven are marked by the consequences of sin. And think about what that means about your inheritance. You don't need to worry. Young man, you don't need to worry this morning about being bored in heaven. Heaven will not be boring It is perfect creation. It is endlessly delightful, endlessly in bloom. When we think about heaven as boring or eternity as tiring, doesn't that betray heretical thoughts in us? We secretly fear this boredom of eternity, but really that just exposes in us this belief that, hey, normal and exciting things are things that are marked by sin. But heaven is perfect, and perfect means eternally delightful, eternally pleasing, eternally pleasant. You don't have to worry about being bored in heaven. You don't have to worry about not being absolutely satisfied in Jesus' presence. You don't have to worry about whether it will be worth it all when you see Jesus. You know it will be worth it all because it will be a perfect life fulfilling God's salvation purposes, and it will be uncorruptible, untouchable, unfading by sin and its consequences. That's what this eternal, imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance is. It is everything God has promised for his people in the future. We see promises of inheritance from God all over Scripture. Ephesians 1 11, it says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Colossians 1 12, talking about our salvation from the domain of darkness. It says, The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Um, Colossians 3 24, talking to servants of all people, saying, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not from men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no, inheritance, uh, no uh, partiality. What, what is this inheritance? Well, we, we looked at it negatively. Let's quickly just turn the pages of Scripture a little bit and look at it positively through a few snapshots. It is a life in a new world that is made right and perfect finally. It is life as it was meant to be lived, Revelation 21, 1, 5, and 10 would tell us. It is also a life with no more tears, pain, or sorrow, as Revelation 21, 4 would say. It is a citizenship. It is a citizenship in the kingdom of God. As Philippians 3.20 would say, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It It is like going home. It is like finally going home after that tedious and long and difficult road trip, and you know I belong here. Our citizenship is in heaven. It is a future hope that the full and final deliverance of sin will come. It is the final separation of sin. Philippians 3.21 continues, When Jesus comes, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. It is a time of rewarding As you see, Peter 1, 7 talks about. It will result in praise, in verse 7, in praise and in glory and in honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ appears, those people who have been proven and tested by trials will have praise, honor, and glory coming their way from Jesus It is a time of reigning with Christ. Revelation 22, 2 would say, No longer will there be anything accursed, talking about the eternal state, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It'll be a time when the promises of God's perfect return on incurred earthly losses will be met. God will pay back. God will return anything someone has lost for following him. Matthew 19, 29 says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Or to think of it in another way, and maybe a more relational way, but in, in, in the same way, it is the riches of God's overwhelming love and inheritance that presently you need the enlightenment of God to even see and enjoy. Ephesians 1.18 says, I do not see, cease to think." Uh, Give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you, he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his might, that he has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. We need the heavenly spirit to open up our minds to how great god's love and care for us will be in that day this inheritance will also be a dwelling place with god forever revelation 21 4 tells us this the dwelling place of god is with men he will dwell with them and they will be his people and he himself will be with them as their god or think about this lastly this eternal inheritance God has purposed from eternity past to be a platform for his praise forever. That is your inheritance God is crafting for his praise forever. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He is making an inheritance for you that will be for the praise of his glory. And God is not going to be chintzy about his fame. Right? Chintzy. It means to be cheaply built, to be poorly constructed, to have, as your beloved phone has, planned obsolescence. God is, not, God is not creating an internal inheritance for you that is not going to be worth it because God has wrapped his glory and his fame and his eternal praise up in your inheritance. That is the inheritance that awaits the believer and I. I could go through all those cross-references. Or I could just do it with one cross-reference. The way Peter does. I like Peter. Because he says a lot of things in a little space. He doesn't need all those things. He just says this. Turn over to 1 Peter 5, verse 10. Peter basically says all of that in one verse. And after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Notice, Jesus will himself do these things when he returns to earth, personally to earth, to set up his promised kingdom. He will fulfill these things. And notice all those words that Peter says, restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. These are intentionally overlapping words in their meaning to basically say, God will make everything right beyond our wildest dreams. We will look at it and we will say, why me? How did I get to be a part of this? He has set his wealth among you. And I ask you, my friend, my unbelieving friend, doesn't this wealth expose your true insecurity, instability, your poverty? Third spiritual perspective we must have. Yes, he has set his life life within us. He has set his wealth before us. Third, he has set his defense around you. He has set his defense around you. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Ready? For salvation, ready to be revealed at the last times. So the word "guarded" there is the same word used to speak of garrisons around cities that would defend them against mortal enemies. Uh, who's the who here in verse five? Uh, this isn't just God's defense around the inheritance but it also is around the ones who is, he is causing to inherit, those who are born again. God has put powerful defenses around the children of his new birth, we see here. And, and we also see here, your glorious salvation is not something that God gives to you and say, enjoy, I hope, I hope you make it. It's not something God is wringing his hands with in anxiety, saying, I hope they can endure. God doesn't come smashing through the side door saying, Panic! Trial is coming! Everybody, take cover! We see here, it is a glorious salvation. It is so secure, it is proven as such by testing and trials. Matter of fact, God, we see here, is determined to keep his beloved to the end. We see a God here who will not let forces of hell, schemes of men, pluck his beloved from his hand. We see here a picture of a warrior who will defend and pursue until your dying day with steadfast love and faithfulness he will guard how does he guard he guards by strengthening faith verse five god's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time now some of you might quip aha so it is really up to me all in the end look at that it says through faith right there well i would answer if That's how you would define faith, yes. But I I don't see faith as anything in us but a simple recognition of our weakness and of his might. Faith is reaching up empty hands to God, saying, I need your strength, your power. Faith is, as the hymn would say, nothing in my hand I bring, only to your cross I cling I love the way Spurgeon illustrates faith. He says it this way he He describes faith like a small cord connecting you to something powerful and firm and pulling you to safety. And so he pictures this scene. Two men are being hurled down a vicious river. There are deadly falls approaching at the end of the river. A rescuer comes through the brush. He throws out a small cord. Both men grab onto the cord. Yet, and as they're being pulled to shore, they're struggling, but they are safe And then one of the men sees a log floating by, and that seems a lot more easy. You won't get water splashed in your face. And so he leaves the cord and grabs onto the log and for a moment appears to be more secure than the man with the cord. And Spurgeon goes on to say, so is the man who trusts in his work like the man who grabs the log. But faith, though it may seem... To be a slender cord is in the hands of the great God on the shore side. Infinite power pulls in the connecting line, and thus draws the man from destruction. Oh, the blessedness of faith, because it unites us to God. Notice, both men, they, you could say it like this, both men have faith. One has faith. In the log, the other man has faith in the cord. But it all depends. The difference between faith that is powerful and faith that is weak is on what it is connected to. The faith that is looking to God is connected to infinite power pulling in the connecting line. He has set his defense around you. You are held firm and safe despite the raging torrent that might be around you, despite the vicious falls that are before you. You are safe because infinite power is connected to you through faith pulling you home. And I ask you, my friend, my unbelieving friend who is hearing this message, do not these deadly, terrifying falls of eternal unrest trouble you? Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty four, Everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But then in verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Is your fall great? Could your Savior be greater this morning? Well, there we have it. There's the three spiritual perspectives that you must have if you're going to be of spiritual good. Spiritual perspectives that give endurance to trial and even joy in the midst of trial. But, I'm sorry, there's actually one more. I snuck it in on there. This is actually the important one. This is my favorite one. This is the last but vital piece. This is the motivator behind it all, the cause of the causer. This is the great joy of the sinner's heart, the spiritual perspective. The fourth spiritual perspective is God has set his mercy upon you. God has set his mercy upon you. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. Notice he doesn't save you because you have impressed him so much this last week. He doesn't save you because you worked really hard. It doesn't say, he doesn't save you because you went to church even through a pandemic. He doesn't save you because you've come from the right family. He doesn't save you because you've really come a long way. He doesn't save you even because of your faith, your belief, your repentance. No, look at that. God saves you because He is great in mercy. And let that sink into your troubled soul this morning. He is great. He has something in large quantities. He has something in vastness. He has something that's expansive, that is, as the King James Version would say, abundant. Another Version would say, boundless. Ephesians 1-3 would say, God is rich in mercy. God has this richness, this great mercy. And this mercy is action towards someone that is done precisely because they are so miserable. That is what word, the word mercy means. It is, it is focusing on the miserableness of the object. Not only that, it is also a miserableness that is often deserved. And This means God is kind to people when he didn't have to be kind to them. That is God's mercy on display in your life. God is kind towards enemies and sinners who he should have passed by. That is God's character. That is God's nature. Let me give you two examples of this. I don't know about you, but I think God should have left Lot in Sodom. God could have let him suffer for his greed, right? But he didn't. It says in Genesis nineteen sixteen, He showed mercy. He he lingered, he pulled Lot from Sodom. Another example, all those blind, those lame, those deaf, those leopards in Jesus' day, Jesus He healed them, but did he need to heal them to fulfill God's mission? No. He healed them to show us God's mercy and the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. This is the reason why God saves anyone, by the way. This is the reason why God saves you. He purposes to glorify His great name in saving helpless sinners and giving them undeserved eternal rewards. God is great in mercy. And I ask you, my unbelieving friend, could not this God so great in mercy be great towards you? Are you miserable today? Isaiah 55, 6-7 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Right now, right now in the quietness of your seats, in your heart, in the secret regions of your soul, confess your sins to God. Return to God. Make yourself miserable in your sin before God, for he will abundantly pardon. He is merciful to the miserable who acknowledge their sin. That is our God. These are the spiritual perspectives that we have that make us of earthly good in the world around us. We don't want to just survive trials. We want to thrive in trials. We want to to do earthly good in trials. We wish to be God's people in trials. We may not go looking for them, but when they come, we can receive them as friends who will be instruments in our lives for our good and God's ultimate glory. That is the spiritual perspective that the Christian has. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, who lavishes on us mercy and grace and riches and kindness, As we receive your word today, we receive it with a new humility. You are a God who saves us because of your grace, because of your mercy. And as we make our way through this world with the troubles that may come our way, we can rejoice and be exceedingly glad in you, for you are a God who gives us something that can never fade or fail or be soiled you give us an eternal inheritance salvation in your son jesus christ and as we come now to the point in our service where we remember your son in his body and his blood As we remember and as we receive, we pray that these spiritual realities would burn in our hearts and in our minds, our miserable nature, but also our blessed nature. Our hands would tremble as we take, our lips would be humble as we drink this precious body and blood as we remember what you have done. Amen. Amen.